Hello and welcome to the Derek Hunter Podcast. If you're so inclined, please do support the show at DerekHunter.Locals.com and at Patreon.com slash Podcast. My name is Dean Carianis. Thank you for having me here this week. You can read my columns in the New York Sun. You can visit me at History Dean on Twitter or find my vast archive of History Author Show interviews at HistoryAuthor.com or wherever fine pod is found. Plus, I have that YouTube channel. I try to be all over the place wherever good people might want to find me. Push back the frontiers of ignorance, as our Rush Limbaugh guest host, Dr. Walter E. Williams, used to say. I offer you all congratulations because the date is Friday, October 27, 2023. And that means it's time to take a bow because you made it through yet another week of the turmoil that is modern life. Violence, congressional, speaker, debates, famine, pestilence, conquest, and everyone's least favorite horse of the apocalypse, war. Speaking of war, we are very fortunate to have my colleague at the New York Sun, whose name, I am sure she'll correct me if I get it wrong, Clara Previ Durie. <laughs> Close? Clara Previ Durie, but actually very Clara close. Closer than most people. You are joining us here from Brussels with your unique name, which I hope sticks in people's minds. And so every time they see your byline, they will want to go and read what you have to report. Tell us about this recent trip you took to cover the war in Ukraine, because I think people here, it's become just another issue in the U.S. and maybe wider around the world where people don't really think of the on the ground things that are happening. And we tend to just divide it up. And we probably don't trust a lot of the other journalists that just go over there and they're going for themselves. And I got the feeling you really went to Ukraine for the story because you want to be a real journalist, not somebody who's looking to burnish your resume. So tell us about that. How do you end up going over there to Ukraine? Yeah, so it's always been a goal of mine to be a war correspondent. It's something that I've wanted to do since I was a kid. And, you know, since I moved to Brussels, I've been doing a lot of reporting on Ukraine. And I always think, you know, this is a, an unpopular opinion, but I always think that being on the ground, it's key to a journalist. It's, it's very important for when reporting a story. And when I say it's unpopular opinions, because a lot of people say that that may be a waste of time. And with all the technology nowadays, it's way easier to get your source and get your stories from any part of the world just with a computer. However, my experience in Ukraine proved that theory wrong, in my opinion, and just reinforced <laughs> yeah. what I always say of being on the ground is way more important. You see the news in Ukraine. As you mentioned, the war in Ukraine has sort of the backside of the people, of people's minds. People don't talk about it as much anymore, especially now with the war between Israel and Hamas. It's been something that's been going on since February 2022. We're about to hit the two-year mark. People are like, yeah, well, it's still ongoing. And you keep reading, you know, the big cities like Kiev, Lviv and Kharkiv return to normal. And that's something that when I got there, I realized that it wasn't. The minute you hit ground, you, you, you arrive to Kiev, you sort of see people on the streets, you know, people going back to work and, you know, you kids going out and hanging out with their friends. And, and you sort of start thinking like, well, maybe what people are reporting on, what journalists are reporting on is true. Maybe people have actually gone back to 
normal. But in reality, there is something between lines that you can only see when you spend time there, when you actually start talking to people there. And that is people have learned how to live with constant air alarms, with having to face every day with not knowing whether their loved ones are safe or not in the front lines. Some people every week, they keep checking whether their husbands or their sons or their friends are okay on the front lines. And in some way, that's how they learn how to live. That's what they consider the new normal. You know, you see kids going to schools in subways, you know, in, in, in metro stations without any windows, without being able to be playing outside with their friends and under constant bombing. You wake up in the morning knowing and, and read in the news that a bomb, that a missile just hit a building a mile away from you. And when you talk to people, when you talk to the locals there, they don't react as if that has become their new normal. I was talking to this woman. She guided me and she walked me back to her hotel. And when you saw her at first, she was this very busy businesswoman. You know, she was walking from there to here and, and just having so many things in her mind, business related. And then the minute I got to talk to her, she all of a sudden started crying. And she was like, yeah, my cousin died three weeks ago in the war. And I have my husband there and I have a friend there. And the war is intensifying despite what people think. You never know they're going to be safe or not. And that was the moment when, when it hit me. And I was like, yeah, this is what not only this woman that I'm talking to is living, but every single Ukrainian. And the first thing that you see is you think they're okay. And that you think that they went back to normality. But in reality, they are living with such a big and heavy backpack that you can only see by spending time there. And yeah. And they wouldn't tell you that necessarily over an email or over a Twitter. They, she might not only give you the first perception, right? Unless you're there to be with the person for a few days. And this is something so important in history. So when you say about really going there and you can't just cover it over Zoom or the internet, that's one of the reasons why you wouldn't get that impression from her. And I think everyone listening can hear you have, you have so much that you picked up that's loaded into your mind and now you're trying to just get it out in words and, and in your reporting. That's something you don't get when you ask somebody for a statement via email. They give you the statement via email. They just instinctively are going to put a certain spin on it, not intentionally trying to deceive or whatever, but they're going to say, we're fine. Everything is good. We just go about our business. But in reality, they're struggling. In reality, even though humans are uh, are adaptive and they're resilient, we all deny that there are those pains and it's something you could only see i think if you really walked with that woman it's not something you would have gotten from her she may not even realize it herself until you're looking at her directly from the outside right there exactly and it's something that for example fireworks are banned in ukraine it's the simple fact that people will get ptsd the bombing and the constant explosion around them is ingrained in their minds. And the simple fact that fireworks are banned gives you a good indicator of how much something that is not typical, but especially during the holidays, you see fireworks and something that's sort of a given could trigger something in Ukrainians. And so exactly with what you said, you don't really get these emotions by being behind a computer or by just having conversation via Zoom with someone, even if it's an hour. You need to really sit down there and just witness what everyone's living and what everyone's experiencing there, which you can't really through a computer or through an email. 
and they won't tell you. None of us is self-conscious enough to see what we look like from the outside or none of us know what, what we're doing. For instance, you'll have sometimes little details like you notice the explosion in the background that maybe they don't notice or they hear the air raid siren and they go about their usual lives. Yeah. That's not the kind of thing that somebody would mention because it's just normal to you. As you were just saying about the fireworks, we would take that for granted and they wouldn't think to look at it through our eyes. And that's the view that I find reading. And I was talking to some of the Sun people last night at the Algaminer dinner, and they were saying how pleased Seth Lipsky, our fearless editor and leader there, was with your reporting from Ukraine and everybody there was that they felt it really did that job, that it wasn't just a rehash. We say at the Sun, we're not there to rehash wire copy. But that doesn't mean that everybody was applauding the idea of you going over there. I'm sure that your family back in Argentina wasn't uh, wasn't happy with the idea or wasn't enthusiastic maybe at first uh, about the idea of you going there to somewhere that is at war, that is in an active war. So when you first decide that you're going to do this, that this is the guns that you're going to run to the sound of, it reminds me of the young Winston Churchill was probably about your age when he covered his first war. First time that he was under fire on his 21st birthday, by the way. Yeah. So when you decide to do this, what's the reaction from the people around you? Because this is not like a regular job might be where, oh, I'm just traveling for work to go cover a band or I'm going for work to cover another story, an election. This is you going to an active war zone. So how do you navigate all that? Did you get a lot of pushback from various people or did they understand this is your dream and they supported you right away? When it comes to my loved ones back home, I am from Argentina, by the way. So my back home is 12,000 miles away from where I'm at right now. But when it comes to my loved ones back home, they were really supportive. I've always grew up in an environment where nobody ever told me I can't do anything because I'm a woman, because of anything. I was always educated in a way that I can achieve anything that I want to. So when I told my parents about that, I could potentially be going to Ukraine, they were really supportive. My mom was a bit maybe more hesitant. She wanted to make sure that I was following all guidelines. And I reassured her that I was and that I was taking all the safety measures. I'm very responsible in that regard. I don't go anywhere blind. And Ukraine is definitely not a place to go in just something that you plan from one day to another. You definitely have to make sure to do your your research and your security measure reading. Um, and that's what I did. And I reassured her of that. I think that the people who I received most pushback was from my own editors, not because they didn't believe in me, but because of safety reasons. And <laughs> they wanted to make sure that I was going to be safe, as safe as, as one could be, can be. So, you know, we, we worked up a schedule where I could, you know, give them updates every day of what I was doing and let them know when I was back in the hotel and safe. Uh, I made sure that all my hotels had a shelter there. I gave them all the phone numbers. I remember one day I was traveling from Kiev to Kharkiv in a train. It was a six hour train and I had to run to the train because I was coming out of that one interview. So I didn't have any Wi-Fi or signal to let my editor know that I was going to be offline for six hours. And so my editor called the hotel that I was supposed to stay in Kharkiv to ask them if I had arrived, which I hadn't yet. And then as soon as I got Wi-Fi, he was like, Clara, are you okay? And I was like, yes, I'm okay. So from that moment onwards, I every morning and every evening, I made sure to let them know my whereabouts and what my schedule for the day was going to be. But no, you know what? I was surprised of how much 
support I received, despite people's concerns on my safety, which is logical, which is rational. Despite that, everybody was really supportive. And something that I really liked about the sun is that they didn't restrict me or they didn't put any conditions on me. This was a sort of get to adjustment trip in a way. So I never received any guidelines or conditions on how many stories I had to find or write. It was sort of go there and do the best that you can. And I really appreciated that. They really gave me that liberty to make sure I was comfortable enough and not have the pressure of having to do a certain amount of stories. I put that pressure on myself because that's just who I am. But I didn't have that outside pressure of, you know, of someone telling me you have to do this amount of stories. And I also, when talking with the fixers there, they would tell me how other media work because the fixers work with other media. And they were telling me, yeah, well, this media, for example, didn't let their journalists go to this region or this region. I never received those type of restrictions. I felt like they gave me the liberty to make my own decisions and that they trusted my decisions and that they trusted I was going to be responsible with this trip and, and use my time wisely. And I did. I, I feel like I, I did. I ended up achieving more than I had you know, proposed to write about as it was just an adjustment trip. I was like, okay, I'm going to do as much as I can, but, you know, also making sure that I feel comfortable and that I am finding more stories than I thought I would. And I think that's part because I didn't have that outside pressure of you need to write this amount of stories and find this and this and this. So I'm really appreciative of that. That really helped my reporting. I think that's a really important thing for people listening to hear about the sun, because I try to tell them what goes on there. And I hope that based on my background that they at least listen and go and check out the sun. But that's one of those things you don't notice either from the outside where you go to work at certain places and you're required to write so many pieces a month or so many pieces a day. And then what happens? They end up just cranking it out. When people say news is made, I always said when I worked at Fox News Channel, it's the same way sausage is made. And it's not really something you want to see. It becomes a product then. Nowadays, people call everything a content. You're producing content instead of producing news or producing entertainment. It's just content. And to me, I was smiling when you said that about they didn't put the pressure on you and you put the pressure on yourself to write a certain number of pieces because that's exactly how I am. I look at a news store and I say, everyone's going to be saying the same thing about this event that happened. And unless I have something unique to say, why am I just going to rehash what other people say? I'll just leave that piece aside sometimes, even if I've pitched it in a meeting and Seth has said he'd like to read it, I will just not end up writing it because I look at it, I see someone else wrote things that are similar. And that's another thing that, that they won't write, which wasn't a challenge for you in Ukraine, but they won't publish a story if somebody in the New York Times or somebody in the Wall Street Journal yeah. scoops it and covers all the same ground, which can be frustrating a little bit for us, but we're all professionals there. And Seth will lead us through it and say, this has happened to me and it's happened to me. And I had the story of my life in Vietnam and then Apollo 13 goes and, and blows up. And uh, my story gets completely broomed, this big six page story that he had, including the cover of Stars and Stripes magazine. So that's something I think well worth people's time to go and see what they're doing there. I feel very fortunate to have found the sun because I look at some of these other places and say, I just couldn't do it. That's why I didn't want to work in cable news anymore. I couldn't be one of these people that's just taking advantage of people and playing games and is just doing, as you said, the, I don't want to say lazy, but the easy way to do these stories is just to email a bunch of people in Ukraine, get some of those packaged responses that they say upon reflection, not to actually go there. 
Hmm. So that brings me around to my second item here from what you said and that's you talked about and wrote about the fixers over there which is a kind of a cool name as a different (laughs) connotation in america but when you go there and you're going around you're looking at things that are happening i wonder if after two years you talked about them having brought other journalists through there if there's a system in place where they show you what they would like to show you or it's already well-trodden ground and you have to try to get out of that well-trodden ground Because I'm thinking, for instance, when I interviewed Adam Higginbotham about his book, Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster, he talked about how there was a lot of already disaster tourism there for Chernobyl and the meltdown. And he said every clock in the town that Chernobyl's in, which I'm forgetting now, but they're all stopped at whatever time it was of the meltdown. And he said, no clock stopped. Radiation doesn't stop clocks. It's not like a nuclear blast, he said, but it's all dramatic. They're trying to put on a show for you. He was sitting one day with a fireman who was going to take him out to some of the ruins. And he says, I see in the reflection of the window, he's climbing up on a chair to move the clock and stop it. All the teddy bears that we see and little dolls. He says, yeah, people just throw them all over for pictures. And he said, I had to make clear to him that as a journalist and a historian, I wanted the real story. I didn't want the tourists version of the story. I really wanted to know what had happened and they didn't need to make it prettier for me. So I'm wondering for you, when you go over there and you're with these fixers, what their role entails and if they are a little bit different from that, which which hopefully they are, where they're going to take you where you want to go. They're not going to try to force a, a story on you or reframe something that, as I was just saying for the sun, they're not going to want to report because everyone else always have it. So what's the role of that fixer? How do they take you around and what are you seeing so that you know, as a journalist, you're getting the real story? Absolutely. So I had two experiences with different type of fixers. So one are the media hubs that I wouldn't necessarily call them fixers. There are these media hubs that were established by the government. And, you know, you as a journalist, you go there and, you know, you ask for certain support. The support can be if you need translator, if you need to know which hotels are best, if you need to know what the situation is, how to get around. You can even ask them for stories as well. So they're there to support journalists, local and foreign media that come to Ukraine. So you have media hubs in the main cities. I went to the one in Kiev and Kharkiv. So the reality is that I mostly contacted them for logistical things like what are the best hotels? that I can make sure that have shelters. You know, it's my first time in Ukraine. So I had to make sure to get a local perspective of which were the best places to stay at. When I say best is the safest places to stay at. Yeah, I was going to say, that's an important distinction. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, I didn't really care about luxury or, or, you know, (laughs) or anything like that. But it's something we don't think about. And that's a good thing to be aware of. And you are in your writing as well is... When you say certain words, like I said, the term fixer, you say the best hotel, that's the kind of things that we have in our mind. And it's the kind of thing if you even ask somebody via email or on a Zoom call, they might not have the same perspective when they answer you about what's the safest. So going there and pausing, it makes you so much more aware. It makes your writing so much better than somebody who just looks this as another bunch of words to put together and isn't really on the ground. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I agree. It was mainly make sure that the hotel had shelters and make sure that they were located in the city center, that I wouldn't have to go in and out of the city every time I had to go in an interview. So I wanted to make sure that was 
located strategically. And so I contacted the media center for that. And then I did ask for help with getting a translator. But then when I went into the media hubs, they did, you know, suggest stories when I asked. And, you know, again, we need to know that they are government agencies. So they are going to give us the information that the government wants us to see. And so I worked with different fixers, with fixers outside the media hubs. And in reality, they do whatever you want to do. I never felt pressure from my fixers to go to a certain area or see or talk to certain people. Absolutely not. They 100% were there for me. And if I asked for it, they would give it, but they were 100% there to do what I wanted to do, not what they wanted to do or what was convenient for them to do. And so, for example, I said, I wanted to go to Kupiansk, you know, and, and they told me what the risks were and they gave me a bit of context of Kupiansk, but I was like, I want to go. And they were like, okay, let's go. And then again, something really valuable about the sun was, I repeat, I didn't have that pressure to write a store, an article per day, for example, Kupiansk, when I went to Kupiansk, I had no intention of, I didn't go to Kupiansk with the intention of finding a story. I was like, I'm going to go and see what's going on. I'm going to go there as a journalist. But the last thing that I want is to disrupt the lives of the people. So if I see that I will add an extra burden to the people, I will not be interviewing them. So when we went to Kupiansk, again, the fixers were like, I mean, do you want to talk to people? Do you not? And and, then they were they were fine with whatever decision I made. And then when we decided to cross the bridge, which that was more of a riskier decision, because when you cross a bridge, you're pretty much entering a battle zone. It's just gunshots and just it's a battle zone. It's just destroyed. They're just missiles flying and falling all around you. And even in that decision, they were like, it's up to you. Do you want to cross a bridge or not? And so I found the role of the fixer. It was very, very important for my reporting because they were not only there to you know translate and also but asked for, gave me some safety recommendations, but they were also there to support me and they supported me a hundred percent. And that was my experience with every fixer that I worked with in Ukraine. I also had the benefit of working with a fixer who was a local in Kupiansk. He lived there. So it was heartbreaking as well as informative in a way to have him there with me. And he would point out to the places where he used to play as a kid, you know, or where he used to play soccer, where he used to go to school. That was in one of your pieces. Yes, exactly. His name was Dennis. Yeah. Describe that. Yeah. Yeah. And and so Dennis was telling me, yeah, I moved to Kharkiv to the city. But my parents, for example, they didn't want to leave. So his parents were under Russian occupation and they they never wanted to leave. And I even, we even stopped by to say hi to his parents on the way back. So something that I kept reminding myself was, we're people first, we're human first, and then journalists. My journalistic duty does not have to override what the people in Ukraine are going through and, and, and do not have to override my empathy and my compassion toward the people in Ukraine. And that's something, that's like, again, as I was mentioning, if I see that I'm going to be adding an extra burden to the people in Kupians or to anyone in Ukraine, I do not want to do that. That's the last thing that I want to do. And again, I felt like I had the privilege to say that to myself because I never felt that pressure of having to report a story and everywhere I went to. I ended up doing that under my own consideration. So important because I think, and it's gotten so much worse now, but I'm thinking back to a friend of mine when he was in the, he was covering one of the hard news things. I believe it was, there was a shooting in, 
Paducah, Kentucky. And they're trying to push you always at Fox News Channel at the time. And this is in all of the cable news now. We have to fill those hours. And he said, I'm in my shorts at nine at night. And this man who's a pastor out there at the church in Paducah has just had a dozen or whatever it was. I feel bad not remembering, but a bunch of members of his parish have been killed. And I'm trying to convince this man to come on TV and do three and a half minutes between commercials for Velveeta talking about these people that he's preparing. But the guy's preparing to do a dozen funerals yeah. right now of people that he knew, that he raised, uh, that he christened, that he knows their families. And he just said, this friend of mine, I thought, what what am I doing? Why why am I doing this? This is so horrible to have to do that. And that, that and that's not just getting the news, which is what you're talking about. That's really too close to the sensationalism. And I guess it's good that some people are willing to do that. So we get some of those first person stories in the moment. But I think that there's people that don't respect that line the yeah. way you're saying you respected that line when you were there. And that's why you chose to go to that town. You wanted to tell the story, but you don't want to make yourself the story or insert yourself into the story or not show that basic humanity that if you know the song dirty laundry that she's talking about the plane crash with a gleam in her eye and people love bodies and all that's the worst definition of journalism and unfortunately some of it is well earned and it's another part of the son's mission that people are hearing right now reflected in your story that we don't want to do we want people to go back to looking at journalists and saying they respect that profession and that they respect when someone comes there and they don't feel like they're just being used because they have a bloody and violent story, but because you really wanted to tell their story. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's a fine line. It's everywhere in journalism. There's a fine line between where you just do whatever to get that story and where you can put your human side first. There is a very, very fine line. And that's all over journalism. But I think that in war journalism, war correspondence, being a war correspondent, that line is even blurrier because the journalist, you go there to show the reality of what's happening. But at the same time, there's just so much destruction and so much death and things that you can even even think about experiencing yourself. And that's all around you. So that's just a very fine line. And I think that as a journalist, you're always trying to battle between when is necessary to go get a story, when you need to report a story to show the reality, but also respect the people there and the local community there. So I constantly read, before Ukraine, I read so many books on foreign correspondents that were reporting from the front lines. And that's something that I think every foreign correspondent, at least the ones that I've read, have struggled with. They even sometimes, unfortunately, made the mistake of seeing a man who just lost everything. And the first thing in their, their head was like, well, can they go on air? Will yeah. they say that on air? And when you look at the work of these journalists, they're not like that. They just, for a minute, they lose focus on what's important. So I think that's something that was one of my main goals of this trip. I'm human first, and then I'm a journalist. My journalism duty and profession will not override what's happening and the respect that I have toward the local community and Ukrainians. With that in mind, I was able to report on every story that I want to report on. There was not a story that I, I wish I had reported on, but I didn't because of this command that I put on myself. So that's also important noting, but I had it. 
I came back home knowing that I respected and I did everything that I could to respect the local community there and to report on the reality, to show the world what's actually happening in these communities. Especially when you're talking just regular people who you aren't embedded with the military, for instance, where they're soldiers playing an active part. You're not covering Congress where mm. everybody in Congress is part of the story willingly. These are just people that have had their lives torn apart. And I think of in Superstorm Sandy that we had down at the Jersey Shore, and it was in Long Island and a bunch of places. But my house was not far from the beach down the shore, my parents' house. And we didn't know what had become of it. Fortunately, I just happened to know a reporter who had taken refuge at the top floor of the hotel at the end of the street right by the beach. And he was nice enough to shoot his camera down. And he said, we can't get to it because there's too much water. But it did seem like it would have been okay. And I was watching packages and things, trying to catch a glimpse and see if the house was still there. Later, what happens is a lot of people are coming. They're just taking pictures. And it's hurtful. I mean, this is not wartime. I'm not comparing it in that sense. But when your life has been destroyed and all of your possessions are laying out on the street and people are just coming and taking those disaster tourism photos they ask people to stop yeah. because they are real people i think if we lose there's a lot of that loss of humanity then that is then lost in the reporting if that's how you approach the job which you didn't and i come then to a picture there's a photograph of you that's the banner of your twitter page and that's Clara Previer, D-U-R. So that's tough to, to remember, but I'm going to retweet that. Uh, <laughs> I'll retweet this image uh, at History Dean so people can go follow you from there. And I hope that they will because they can already tell they're going to want to follow what you are writing and seeing. It struck me when I saw that photo on Instagram and my wife saw it as well separately and she was struck by it enough to mention it. And I wanted you to describe it because to me, Again, talking about that outside perspective, something you may not realize about yourself is you look at that and you see you looking at this area, I'll let you describe and tell us where you are, but it reminded me of World War One when you see those pictures of the soldiers that have been stuck in the trenches and seen war and they have what they call the thousand yard stare. You're not focusing on anything in particular. You just look overwhelmed by what is going on. And it's really a striking photo, especially since there you're wearing your press helmet and mm. your press jacket, I guess. Was that, is that bulletproof? Yeah, so it's a bulletproof vest. Go ahead and describe it. So that photo was taken in Kupiansk. And that was the first time I was actually scared, that I actually felt fear. To be honest, I never feel fear. I don't think I've ever felt fear in my life. And I've been lost in sea. I, you know, scuba diving trip, I, the boat forgot me and I was stuck in sea for like four or five hours. Oh my gosh. I wasn't even scared at that point. Why not? You should have been. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, I was stuck in a snowstorm in the middle of the Himalaya and I wasn't scared there either. I'm not a person that scares easily, but that was the first time that I was actually afraid. The place where that picture was taken was in a market that used to be a very how they described it because I never experienced it myself but that used to be you know the main market in Kupiansk and everybody would have their businesses there and everybody would sell stuff and the whole town would go there especially on the weekends from what I understood and they would just gather there and a lot of events would happen and it was huge I don't think you can tell from the picture but that market was huge and it was all bombed by the Russians and you could even see the still certain missiles stuck in the floor that nobody grabbed and nobody took. And you could see like massive, you know, holes in the ground where another missile hit. That was the first place that my fixers took me in Kupiansk and to show me 
the intensity of the destruction that was happening. My goal, a big part of my trip, was to show the consequences, the aftermath of Russian occupation. Because not only Kupians, but many other towns that I visited during my time in Ukraine were occupied by Russian troops, and then they were liberated by Ukrainian forces. However, these towns were never recovered. People had to evacuate these places. Their whole lives were destroyed. Um, that was the first time I was actually scared. And the, the, during that picture, there were air alarms going off. And my fixers, who are also fearless, by the way, my fixers were like, we better go hide. And that was the first time they ever told me that my whole Ukraine trip. They were usually, as we mentioned before, when our air alarms go off, Ukrainians usually just ignore them because they're like, especially in the Kharkiv area, because Kharkiv, right now, Russians are targeting the, the region with missile S-300 missiles, which take only 40 seconds to get to hit their targets. So, for example, if they launch a missile and then the alarm takes, what, 20 seconds for Ukrainians to locate the missiles, and that's when they turn on the alarms, then people only have 20 seconds to go hide. So people just decide not to even stress about it, especially because the alarms are going off. I would say every two hours, sometimes every hour. So that was the first time they actually said, we better go hide because we're five miles away from the front line from Russian troops. Russian troops are right there and you can see the battle zone and you can see the smoke in the battle zone. And that was before we crossed the bridge and we actually got in the battle zone. So that was the first time I was actually very close to Russian troops. Right now, Kupiansk is even a hotter area Apparently, Russian troops intensified in the area. Apparently, there are bombs every 20 minutes. There's a new attack in the city. So this is a very hot area right now. And Russian troops really want to reoccupy this area. And, and you can tell. So they're really going at it. And so that picture was, yes, with an air alarm going off and with the constant bombing sounds behind me, which that's constant. You're always hearing different explosions going off. And so, yeah, my fixer took that picture of me. Clearly look rattled and clearly looked just human. Like you said, that's your main goal is to be human and to feel that. And also, once again, something you don't experience over a Zoom call. If somebody, if you just don't answer, oh, everything could be fine, or you get cut off, you reconnect later. Strange time for my internet connection to just stop to prove that exact <laughs> fact. You just keep going on with your conversation. Or... Always in the immediate moment. <laughs> yeah. And so <laughs> you are there because that's what you need to be to really be able to see, smell, feel, walk the ground, as we say in history, is so important. People there, I'm sure they're much more plugged into what's going on in the U.S. than people in the U.S. or in Canada, for instance, are there. You were there, I guess, before that period where they had that, what was probably Putin's biggest win of the war was in, was when Canada decides to bring that Ukrainian who fought on the side of the Nazis in an SS group there. How aware are they? What struck you about how they're plugged into American politics? Are they just happy that President Biden is supporting them and that Zelensky refused his offer or, or declined his offer to fly him out of there and decided to stay and fight? Are they thinking it was good that this didn't happen before and maybe are open to President Trump coming back? Because I wonder about how many headlines we're going to hear in the coming year from Ukrainians on one side or the other or what their perception will be. What are their thoughts, especially since this has been rated one of the most corrupt countries in the world? And you think 
if there's somebody there who is misspending and stealing or or misappropriating the funds the U.S. is sending, that could be a big scandal that scuttles the whole war effort. So how conscious are the people of Ukraine about making sure they stay on the right side, that they stay in America's good graces and stay positive and don't become just another political topic where people harden their hearts one way or the other to what they're experiencing? To start with, I want to mention that at least I would say 70% of the Ukrainians that I talked to mentioned how grateful they are for America's help on the war. They all realized that they wouldn't be the place they're at if it wasn't for America sending aid and equipment. So that's something that really struck me because, you know, we see it on the media all the time and we know that and we know how much America put into this war, but they actually are very conscious of the efforts of America on this war. And they are all very appreciative. And that's something that's been constantly said to me without even me bringing it up because I didn't talk about America most of the time and, and they always brought it up. And that's something that is in the back of their mind all the time. But that being said... So we, as you mentioned, we we are talking about the second most corrupt country in Europe behind Russia. That corruption is still seen nowadays. And that is another thing that's very present in Ukrainians' minds. However, if there's something that I can grab from this war is that it did unite the country. So Ukraine has always been in a way divided. So we have the East and the West. The Eastern side being more of a Russian tolerate, if you want, because during the Soviet era, it was a policy that after graduation, you had to move across different Soviet satellites to work for a bit. So a lot of people from the Eastern side of Ukraine went to Russia and vice versa. So in the Eastern side of Ukraine, most people talk Russian. Still, even though it has decreased a lot since the full scale invasion, a lot of people talk Russian, a lot of people, it's their, you know, first language and have a lot of family members in Russia. So even when the war started in 2014, the war in 2014 didn't directly target the eastern cities of Ukraine, nor the main land in Ukraine. So a lot of people still kept in contact with their family members and friends in Russia. However, since the full scale invasion, most people cut all ties with their family in Russia. So right now, what what I've witnessed was a very united Ukraine, a a Ukraine that wants to come out of this as a full-on nation, as an independent nation, regardless of whether you are Russian ethnic or whether you have your grandmother in Russia or your parents in Russia, or whether your first language is Russian or Ukrainian. People in Ukraine right now are very united under a common leader, which is President Zelensky, and under a common enemy, which is President Putin, which, as I mentioned before, before the full-scale invasion, a lot of people in the eastern side of Ukraine were very tolerant to Putin. Despite him invading part of their country in 2014, they were still very sympathetic toward him and the country, Russian general. So that's something that I can grab from this war, from the full-scale invasion, is that it did unite the country. With that being said... They're very conscious of that there are certain politicians and government officials, especially from the West, that are keeping aid 
that's been sent from foreign governments. And so they're keeping it and not allowing it to reach the front lines, especially in the eastern and southern areas, which are the hot spots right now for battle. So as corruption continues, despite the war, a lot of Ukrainians say the last thing that we need right now is to call out leaders of our government for this and start an internal war at the time when we need to be united. However, this will be a thing after the war ends. This will create a lot of tensions and consequences in Ukraine after the war ends. And that's something that most Ukrainians have told me and uh, government officials have told me. People who held aid, they all know which government officials are holding aid. And even though right now they don't want to confront them because it will just create divisions in a country that cannot afford to have divisions right now, this will be a topic after the war and this will be something that will be addressed. So I think it's an interesting balance of what they're doing. You know, they're sort of trying to put their priorities straight, trying to keep in mind what the main goal at this time is without forgetting and without letting people who should be held accountable go, if that makes sense. Yeah. And also they're going to have an election, which is something that we're suspended in some countries, but we usually like to look at that in the Western countries and in democracies, such as during the Civil War, we always say the American Civil War, we were still having an election, had a presidential election in Great Britain. The same thing, World War II, we say, okay, they were having elections, but also in the broader sense, in World War One, they were only able to say it was a war to make the world safe for democracy, which Woodrow Wilson said after the Russians pulled out and the czar was gone. And he said, well, this will be a good way to frame it. The same thing in the first Gulf War or a similar thing. People saying, why should we protect Kuwait when Kuwait is a, a monarchy and this is not a democracy that we're protecting? And it drove the U.S. to push them to enact some democratic reforms so that we could justify the fact a little more for the American people that we were sending all this money and in that case, spending lives, which we are not doing in Ukraine. What do you think the prospects are for that election? Does it seem like something that the people there think this is a good idea? This is showing that we are still a functioning democracy or would they rather not even have to go to the polls and have to vote? Will they even be able to go to the vote? Do you think that there'll be too much war and attempts from Russia to disrupt it? What do you see for this election for President Zelensky to hold on to his job? So I think that the discussion on elections started pretty much because Senator Lindsey Graham went to Kyiv and said, we will continue giving aid to Ukraine as long as they hold elections. I don't really think that he said that in a way of threatening the country, but he sort of raised this question on how legitimate is Ukraine if they don't hold elections. And I think this pressure is put on Ukraine because, of, as we mentioned, we're talking about a very corrupt country that has a history of corruption. So, you know, elections would start legitimizing the country as a democracy, which it is, but it would start showing that Ukraine is putting efforts into battling this corruption. And as Ukraine wants to become part of the European Union, you know, elections would actually be a step in the right direction. However, I think that this discussion, this debate has been elevated by President Zelensky's sayings. He's been saying in several interviews, we're ready to hold elections. You know, Ukraine is ready as long as we have the funds for this. And as long as we can assure that there are fair free elections. 
when you talk to people in Ukraine, when you talk to government officials, when you talk to election officials, when you talk to the citizens there, the residents of Ukraine, you realize that that's not true. The country's not ready. And that President Zelensky's sayings are a way of trying to satisfy the pressure that Western politicians are putting on Ukraine. President Zelensky is trying to hold a country together while still trying to keep his allies, who are the main funders of this war, of his aid for the war, happy. And while trying to be a good candidate for to join the European Union. So these sayings, according to most, uh, to a lot of officials, are a way of President Zelensky's way of saying, I hear you, America. I hear you, Europe, because a lot of European officials also requested this. I hear what you're saying. I hear your request. I'm ready to do it. But when you go on the ground and you talk to election officials, like I did, there are a million different types of proof of the reasons why Ukraine couldn't hold elections. The main ones would be infrastructure. I would say that the infrastructure for the main cities, such as Kiev and Kharkiv, are there. You, there. There could be voting centers there. However, there's no way there could be voting voting infrastructure in the border towns or in towns that are currently being attacked or targeted by Russian troops. I've been to those towns. There's no way that there's a space or the equipment to make sure that there's a fair and free election in Ukraine. Another risk is Russian interference. Russian interference in the elections. In 2014, they did try and interfere in the elections. And the Central Election Commission eliminated the threat within an hour and got the system running again. However, that was 2014 when the whole country wasn't under attack. Right now, the whole country is on is being targeted right now. So it's, it would be way harder for the election commission to be able to spot and combat and eliminate Russian threats and Russian interference to election. Another question would be, what do we do with the Russian occupied territories? They wouldn't be able to vote either. One last concern of President Zelensky is what would how would the soldiers vote? How would we get voting infrastructure in the trenches? And also, how would we get voting infrastructure for the 7 million refugees around the world? We would need cooperation from many countries that hold that are currently hosting a lot of Ukrainian refugees. So these are only some, and you know, in a very generalized, very not detailed summary of the reasons why Ukraine couldn't hold elections. While talking to members of the parliament, they said the only people that want elections right now are President Zelensky and the government. The opposition, the people in Ukraine do not want elections, not because they do not believe in democracy, but because they know that they cannot assure fair and free elections and because the money and the attention should be focused on winning this war, not on holding elections. And one last thing is that they also did mention there hasn't been an official request from American or European leaders or any Western leader to hold elections. There has just been sayings and interviews of, we hope Ukraine holds elections, but there hasn't actually been an official request requesting to please hold elections. Are they scheduled already? Is there a time when he would, I don't know how long his term of office would be in Ukraine, for instance, as president? Yeah, it would be next year. And the parliamentary elections should have been, oh, actually this Sunday. 
the parliamentary elections, but they will not be held, of course, because uh, we're three days away. But yes, the presidential elections have currently not been declared cancelled. But if this continues the way it is, I don't see elections being held in Ukraine. There are no plans to hold elections, at least from the central Ukraine's Central Election Commission. They're not planning to hold elections at this time. Well, that'll be interesting to see what the response is. It's understandable. It doesn't sound like it's it's going to be possible, but he seems to be saying the right thing. But gosh, don't envy this guy's job uh, to <laughs> have to lead a country in war and then also have to be in a similar situation that Israel is and that Taiwan would be in the event of a war. And a lot of countries have been where you have to keep other countries happy who don't have universal investment in your struggle to even continue to exist. So that that's definitely going to be something to watch for. We know we can watch for it in your columns in the New York Sun. Why don't you remind everyone who you are, where they can find you online, and tell us any last thought you have on why they should read your reporting in the New York Sun, as opposed to some of those other folks out there who <laughs> are trying to beat every day with our reporting and commentary. Well, I think that the New York Sun, as you correctly mentioned before, does not like to and, and, and does not aim to repeat what every outlet is reporting on. We try to get ahead of the agenda and report on the future, report on what's going to happen and make sure to, to get our information from reliable sources and fact-checked and be on the ground. I'm currently in Brussels for that same reason, for that main reason. And hopefully I'll return to Ukraine to keep on reporting from the ground. That's something that distincts the New York Sun from the rest of the media. Yeah. <laughs> and people can go still read your reporting yeah. from over there if they want to get more details. I think you've done a great job. So you are ready to sign off. So go ahead, pronounce your name for us one more time so that people hear it in their ears and sticks with them. Okay. Clara Preve Durrie, with a very Spanish accent there, <laughs> Argentinian accent. You can call me whatever. I've been called worse, <laughs> but I do try for other people. Otherwise, I would spend my time on nothing else all day than correcting people trying to pronounce Carianis. So however you say it, <laughs> but that's why you should go read the New York Sun. You don't have to pronounce our names or hear them. Yeah. You can just we have better things read and then you can get some great insights, reporting stuff you will not find anywhere else. And I say this as somebody who's been in I guess what you'd call the alternative press for a long time and who finds it important. My whole life, I always love to read reporting from people who weren't saying what everyone else is saying. And that's certainly what we got from you, Clara, when you went over to Ukraine. So thanks so much for spending some time with me today. I know it's late there in Brussels. You stayed up late. You did. So I appreciate that and you sharing it with everyone here in Derek Hunter's audience. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, thank you. And enjoy that beer. It's good in Brussels. <laughs> I will. I will. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope you all enjoyed hearing from Clara as much as I enjoyed bringing her to you and her experiences over there in Ukraine. She's really an inspiring young person and i would urge all of you to go and follow her and an inspiring journalist as well i don't want to diminish her because she's younger than me because at this point in my life pretty much everyone's younger than me it gives you hope for journalism and that's something that's so important to everyone at the new york sun and important to me not because i'm a contributor there but because i have seen over the course of my career how 
much bad journalism and journalists who don't take their jobs seriously and who don't have that idea that they need to put their humanity first and foremost and that they really need to follow the store wherever it leads. I've seen how that has hurt real people in their lives, this refusal to cover things that maybe they don't want to cover that are pushing an agenda. So I hope you believe me when I say the reason that I like to talk about the New York Sun and the job that they're doing is because I sincerely believe in it. I only wish Rush was still here because I know he loved the sun and it's 2000 incarnation around that period of time. He would really love this today. Many of the same things and ideas and observations I used to share with him as a member of his staff are things I write about now in the New York Sun. So if you miss that unique voice, you can hear at least a little bit of it through my columns and certainly everyone else, people like Claudio that we have over there are going to bring you other things all in the same vein of what the rest of the media is not saying. Rush used to say how if you miss the New York Times, read the Washington Post. You miss the Washington Post, go ahead and watch ABC. Miss them, CBS. Miss them, CNN, NBC. Everyone was saying the same thing. Everyone makes their news off that front page of the New York Times back in those days. Today, they make them off what's trending on Twitter. People are pursuing clicks and attention. I would rather be informed. And that's one of the reasons that I'm glad to be able to promote the New York Sun a little bit today. Thank you all for indulging me to do so. Thank you for listening to Derek's show. That concludes my week for all of you. I hope those of you who listen to every day or just some of it will go back, listen to some of my content, some of Derek's. Love that he has that same mission to bring unique perspectives, not say the conventional wisdom. There are plenty of people that I could name in the media, either left, right, or center, who will give you that, who will say what everyone else is saying. I am really happy Derek welcomed me here to continue his mission of saying some things that are a little bit different. And I hope all of you will go and support his show at DerekHunter.Locals.com and Patreon.com slash Podcast. I really appreciate you spending this week with me. Again, my name is Dean Carianis. You can find me at HistoryAuthor.com or at HistoryDean on Twitter or some of those other places out there on social media. Now, the sooner I shut up, you can go and enjoy your weekend. So get out there. Maybe turn off some of that boring same old news. Listen to some things that are unique and inform and uplift you. Take care of yourselves. And until next time, thanks again for spending some time with me. Thank you.